Hello, friends. Welcome to Fringe with Benefits. I'm your host, Stacy. You know, Stacy, the same chick you've been showing up to listen to this whole time. We're here at episode 21, and I come to you to scramble your brain on all things anomalous, peculiar, weird, and abnormal. Hold on to your seats, friends. Now, we like to get the business out of the way here because that's all really boring stuff. You're going to find me on all kinds of social media platforms. We've got the Fringe with Benefits Facebook page. We have Inward Survival's Facebook page. In case you came to the party a little late, Inward Survival is the nonprofit. It's a 501c3 uh, method of resilience training. It is a startup nonprofit that I am responsible for. And my Facebook fan page is at Stacy Leosorio. If you're interested in the Naked and Afraid stuff, you can follow me there. My Twitter is at Stacy Fringe. If you go follow it, I'll follow you back from my personal page. Instagram is at golden underscore Valkyrie underscore. And YouTube is at golden Valkyrification. Inward Survival's website is inwardsurvival.com. There are ways to donate and there's a blog over there. Make sure you share the show. If you like the show, share the show. Uh, visit the show's homepage on Anchor and click support the show. And that you know, there's ways that you can support the show there. And I would like to say thank you to the subscribers of the show. I love you. You are amazing. Thank you for supporting the show. If you listen on Apple, I, or <laughs> I was going to say Apple iPods. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, go give me a rating and review. We like five stars. It helps me be seen. If you don't like the show, why are you even listening? And make sure you hit me up on social media. I want to hear what you think. I want you to send me mail. I want to hear... Your, your your pet peeves and, you know, the things that you like about the show. Just uh, hit me up. I love to hear from all of you. I really appreciate it. Now let's get on with our first segment, Stacy Socials. <coughs> this week's Stacy Socials, I wanted to talk about something that's super visible in today's social media world. Everybody's talking about it. And you know, it's something that you just cannot look away from. It's like a really bad car accident. It's a censorship thing. And I wanted to bring up this really witty post a friend of mine posted. He said, I'll keep his name out of it, but it was, it was pretty brilliant. He said, everybody here celebrating censorship, and I just want to know what happened to Jack Ma. Why would anyone want that here? Jack Ma, according to courts... He's been missing, and it's stirring uneasy. This is what the, um, the article says. Jack Ma's absence is stirring uneasy memories of a series of disappeared Chinese tycoons. Where is Jack Ma? That's the question weighing heavily more than any other on the minds of China-focused financial journalists, analysts, and investors. It's been two months since the flamboyant founder of e-commerce, giant Alibaba, vanished from public view. He gave a daring speech, which he criticized Chinese financial regulators for stifling innovation. Soon after those remarks, Beijing suspended the 37 billion IPO of Ma's fintech empire Ant Group planned for November, a decision that was said to be made by Chinese President, oh, I don't know, Xi Jinping. The tech mogul has not since appeared at any public events or given any speeches and was even replaced as a judge in a game show he helped to create to promote African entrepreneurs. It goes on to say that because of such absences in China have often culminated in arrests and prosecutions, rumors are running rampant about Ma's status. CNBC reported yesterday, that's January 5th, that the tycoon is just lying low, citing a source close to the situation. It immediately 
buoyed investor sentiment and shares in Alibaba jumped around 5%. It's unclear what his real situation is though. His absence is raising, like I said, uneasy memories about the other Chinese tycoons and celebrities who vanished from the public eye before. So this guy's basically just fallen off of the face of the earth. They don't know what happened to him. And uh, so, okay, so let's get back to the post. So he's making a really good point. He, you know, he wants to know where this guy is. And making somebody disappear is a form of censorship. It's a form of tyranny. So, you know, of course people or there's this really, really divided sense between the population now is like whether or not these big tech companies are within reason to go ahead and exercise their, you know, private entity right to facilitate whatever topics they want to facilitate for their platform. And the, I think it's uh, Section 230 is what uh, the president has been trying to remove from these people. I don't even know how to say that. <laughs> or the, there's a law that allows them to, they're not acting as publishers or a private entity, therefore they can censor the users on their platform. Everybody who commented on his thing had something to say. And one person in particular must have said some things because this is what the original poster had said to her. He said, I censored your comments since that's your thing. He also said, your most recent reply and response has been deleted and censored as it violates my community standards. He goes on to say, your comment has been deleted as it incites violence. Censorship is fun as long as you are in control of what's being censored. Can you understand why this is so dangerous? He goes on to say, your latest comment violates my community standards and has earned you a 24-hour ban. He goes on to say, I'm glad you now understand my point now. He said, for anyone reading in, I deleted all of her messages and responses to prove a point. Censorship sucks. We should all have access to other people's opinions, even if we disagree with them. Don't be intolerant, support diversity or thought. Don't be intolerant, support diversity of thought. Absolutely. I think he, he made a great point. Removing these comments that somebody may not like from your thread is completely reasonable because it's your thread, right? But at the same time, that's exactly what these platforms are doing. They're only removing thinkers that are um, opposing to what they want to say. And then, then they use the they use the excuse that it's violating community standards. It's, it's such a blanket term. There's no specified reasoning to it. And they're also telling them that um, their words are inciting, they're inciting violence, which that's, you know, a really broad way to, to say that, um, that they just, they just don't want your, they don't want your words up there. So I want people to look at this really clearly and just imagine if it was you, if you haven't been censored yet already, um, if it were you, how would you feel? If it was um, an elected official in which you put into office that's maybe trying to warn people about something that's going on and they censored him, how would that make you feel? Because that's the person that's representing you. I want everybody to look at this very, very clearly because censorship is a big deal. And anybody who's not saying anything about this, you have to ask yourself why. Now, I could have articulated this a lot better, but I'm just so freaking baffled by the idea that some of the key players in our leadership of this country have been taking off, taken off of social media. And the reasoning is, is that they're saying that these people's words are inciting violence, that they're causing disruption. 
when in actuality they're representing half of the or half of the this country's population i think that that really needs to be taken into account i you know i haven't really done a whole lot of research on cults but i do hear a lot of people saying that this this um this following this group of people that they are culty and you know by all means they have the right to say that but in actuality would really half the population be in a cult like you really have to look at that i could see maybe a couple million or even like i don't know 10 million but even that even that's a lot if you look at you know religion and the followership that that has you know it's feasible that people would believe something completely ludicrous in large numbers on a large scale absolutely but the reasoning that they're using to say that everybody who is supporting this type of this leadership is um, brainwashed and out of their minds it's not a really fair sentiment that's fine if they say that, but where where it goes wrong is completely taking their speech from the platform, completely taking away their ability to even say what they're thinking or what they're trying to convey to the American people. the The worst thing that we could do right now is to to censor our speakers, to censor our media, and and the fact that, you know, we're all having to run to, you know, different platforms if you're, you know, worried that you're going to be censored for saying something that, you know, they don't want you to say. So we've got all these new platforms popping up. Speaking of, that's why this um, episode is titled At Golden Valkyrie, because you can pretty much find me anywhere at Golden Valkyrie. And I'm not too sure. I, li- I like Facebook. I like Instagram. I like Twitter. I like all of them. But there's a reason why I'm there, and it's to follow certain people and to connect with people. And I don't care. I don't care what they're saying. I mean, they could put some of the most heinous stuff out there, and I'm pretty much going to just scroll on past. And I think that they have a right to put it out there. We have our First Amendment right to express ourselves freely without fear of retribution or being treated differently. By the way, guys, that's that's discrimination. To treat somebody differently based on what they believe, it's discrimination. And it's wrong. I just wanted to make sure that I, I put that out there, that I, I do not support censorship. And I really, really hope that this situation is remedied before it gets any worse because it's getting pretty bad. And if you don't if you don't notice that, or if you're on the side in which you think that it's okay to stifle somebody else's speech, you might want to really sit down and take a really good look within yourself and maybe use a hypothetical situation in which you're the one who's being censored and you feel that the information you have to convey is imperative to the health of the country, to the health of your neighbors, and for for the good of mankind. Freedom of thought is not dangerous. Lack of freedom of thought is as dangerous as it gets. Okay, so since I totally screwed up this podcast, because I've been all over the map, I have no consistency with where I'm recording, when I'm recording, and how loud it's going to be, it's just going to have to be that way. I I noticed that this sounds pretty echoey, but it's just going to have to do for this week's episode until I can figure out better arrangements, but at least it's quiet. It's really nice. Um, let's go back a little bit before we get into our viral corner. I realize we did Stacy's socials. 
we're going to do this accountability segment real quick, and I'm going to explain to you why things have been so difficult. So I realized that the last segment was really rough, super vague, and thrown together. And to avoid staying away from politics is really difficult right now, I'm sure you guys can tell. I can try, and I may fail at times, but bear with me. I'm here to talk about tough shit, right? And censorship doesn't fly with me, and the tough topics is what needs to be discussed. So if people don't have the balls to talk about it, then they should just step off the platform. We need to talk about the tough things. My personal living situation right now is not ideal for producing a podcast. As you can tell, it's echoey. I don't have a studio. You hear dogs barking. You hear traffic in the background. You're going to hear clicking of nails on the on the kitchen floor because of my dogs. It's just, it's just the way that it's going to be. And I have zero quiet workspace, so this is where I'm going to be. It's going to be like this. I'm doing online school. I'm on the job hunt. I'm remodeling an investment home. And I'm keeping two teens on track, and they both kind of hate me right now. And it's like I have to force myself to spend time with them, even though they really don't want to spend time with me. And it's really difficult uh, for me. I'm fucking beat, guys. I don't know about you, but I'm fucking beat. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm pissed off. I just, you know, you know, I work really hard and I want things to get better. And, you know, I'm, I'm bound and determined to maintain a positive attitude at this point and just keep on. I will continue to try to consistently bring fresh weird news and topics, but if I'm late uploading or need to take a week off, I will continue to record without stressing myself out. But, you know, if I don't do something I set my, set out to do, it stresses me out. So whether or not it's a hobby, I don't, I don't fucking know at this point. <laughs> because I just want to do what I feel is best. And this feels right. So I'm going to continue to do this. So into Viral Corner, see the show notes for Link. The Link is a compilation of mask, de- mask debate footage, which I love saying mask debate. But I only want to talk about the very first video And it's this woman walking her dog. The first time I saw it, I was in disbelief. I was like, this had to have been um, staged. There's no way in hell somebody would actually do what this woman just did. I thought, you know, I thought it was staged, but I really don't think it is now because uh, she's a a cute celebrity. And it looks like that the paparazzi were sitting in their car filming her as she was walking her dog. And she literally, the dog shits and she doesn't have like a little poop bag. So she takes the mask off of her face picks the turd up with her mask, and then fucking looks around and puts the mask back on her face. Now, really? Now, if you watch the video, she responds to the backlash because people are like, what the fuck did you just do? Did you just literally pick up dog shit with your mask and then put it back on your face? And she justifies it by saying she'd rather be caught putting a poop mask on her face than not wear a mask at all. And we all know how I feel about that, guys, but I think that that's absolutely hilarious and ridiculous and sick as hell. So go check out that video. I thought it was a good one. So for one, you know what? Good on her for even being conscientious enough for picking up the dog poop because a lot of people are just so rude and disgusting. They just leave the dog poop there for other people. And good on her for being considerate of others with the mask thing because I know the intentions intentions there. It's it's There's compassion there. But there's also an element of 
societal influence. And that's what I want to bring up. It's kind of thematic how the censorship thing is all at the same time with this influence to cover your mouth and to cover your face. I just want you to think on that for a little bit. So there's our viral corner and our accountability segment rolled into one. Let's move on. The weekly topic this week is going to be super G-rated, super Americana, super traditional. I don't want to get into all the negative bullshit drama that's going on right now. I want to talk about something that people should be informed about. It's um, a part of American history. These are these are our American neighbors that we need to really consider. You know what they say. So. Alien abduction is pretty much the topic for this week, but we're going to delve into the Barney and Betty Hill abduction, which is the first official, um, I would say legitimate, reported UFO abduction ever in our American history, well, that we know of. So we're going to talk about that. The reason why I'm super fascinated with this subject is because when I was a little girl, my dad used to tell me stories about how he believed that there were aliens and that he had seen things when he he grew up on a farm in Iowa and he reported to me that he saw UFOs and he was also at a place in which he witnessed some mutilation, some cattle mutilation. And that's another weird phenomenon. Maybe we'll we'll take a weekly topic and talk about cattle mutilations because that's it's really, really odd and really strange. But this week, I'm going to tell you the story of Barney and Betty Hill. We're going to start with our wiki source. So Barney and Betty Hill were an American couple who claimed they were abducted by extraterrestrials in a rural portion of the state of New Hampshire. It was um, between the wee hours of September 19th to September 20th in 1961. It is the first widely publicized report of an alien abduction in the U.S. If you look at these articles, they were a really, really cute interracial couple in the 60s. We all know that there were some states in which it was illegal to be an interracial couple. So that's another thing that gives them credibility is that why would they call attention to themselves had this not really happened to them? I mean, they already, you know, it seems like they were very, very well loved in their community and uh, people were not so narrow-minded, narrow-minded in this time or in this area for them to not live, you know, a good life the way they wanted to live their life. So that's totally besides the point. But it needs to be said because it gives more credence to their credibility that they would actually come out and talk to people about this. This incident has been known to be called the Hill abduction and the Zeta Reticuli incident because the couple stated they had been kidnapped by aliens who claimed to be from the Zeta Reticuli system. Their story was adapted into a best-selling book in 1966 called The The Interrupted Journey and a 75 television movie, The UFO Incident. So most of Betty Hill's notes, tapes, and other items have been placed in a permanent collection at the University of New Hampshire. I put a link in uh, this so you can look at those items. That's the last link. And there's also a marked site of their incident in which people can go visit. It's a nice, cute little piece of Americana, something besides Roswell that all of us alien lovers or ET lovers can go and see some historic memorabilia of this crazy thing that's been going on that nobody wants to talk about. And it's fucking awesome because people are actually starting to want to talk about it more. The The percentage of worldwide that people that believe that there are extraterrestrials has grown exponentially. 
or I, you know, that's my statistic. I don't know how legit that is. So these people lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He, Barney, was employed by the U- U.S. Postal Service, and Betty was a social worker. They were active in their church, and they were members of the NAACP. They were community leaders, and they sat on, or Barney sat on the board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Now, their encounter, according to a variety of reports given by them, the alleged UFO sighting happened on September 19th, around 10.30 p.m. The Hills were driving back to Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls, just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire. Betty claimed to observe a bright point of light in the sky that moved from below the moon and the planet Jupiter upward to the west of the moon. While Barney navigated Route 3, Betty reasoned that she was observing a falling star, only it moved upward. Since it moved erratically and grew bigger and brighty, Bar- <laughs> since it moved erratically and grew bigger and brighter, Betty urged Barney to stop the car for a closer look, as well as to walk their dog, Delcy. So he stopped at a scenic picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. So Betty was looking through binoculars. She observed this odd-shaped craft flashing multicolored lights, and it traveled across the face of the moon. Because her sister... This is quoted for, from the wiki article. Because her sister had several years earlier had said she'd seen a flying saucer, Betty thought it might be what she was observing. Barney looked through the binoculars, and he reasoned it was a commercial airliner traveling towards Vermont. However, he changed his mind quickly because it turned and it rapidly descended in his direction. This observation caused Barney to realize this ob- This is quoted from Barney. This object that was a plane was not a plane. End quote. They quickly returned to the car and drove towards um, a narrow mountainous stretch of road called Franconia Notch. They continued. They kept driving on this isolated road, moving very slowly through the notch in order to observe the object as it came closer. At one point, the object passed above a restaurant and signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain and came out near the old man of the mountain. I've never been there. I'm not really sure what these are referencing, but we can get a pretty good idea. Betty said that it was at least one and a half times the length of the granite cliff profile. That means it was about 40 feet or 12 meters long, and it seemed to be rotating. They watched this silent, illuminated craft move erratically, bouncing back and forth in the night sky. About one mile south of Indian Head, they said the object rapidly descended towards their vehicle, causing Barney to stop in the middle of the road. It hovered approximately 80 to 100 feet above them, and they were driving a 1957 Chevy Bel Air, which is awesome. It, feel, it filled the entire field of view in the windshield. It, it says it reminded Barney of a huge pancake. He had his pistol in his pocket, and he got out, stepped away from the vehicle, and moved closer to the object. Using binoculars, he claims to have seen about 8 to 11 humanoid figures who were peering out of windows, seeming to look at him. In unison, all but one figure moved to what appeared to be a panel on the rear rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the craft, which is crazy because there's that much detail they'd be able to see these people move along inside the craft to, to what looks like a type of screen. So one figure continued to look at Barney and communicated a message telling him to stay where you are and keep looking. Barney had a recollection of observing the humanoid forms wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. Red lights on what appeared to be batwing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the craft, and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft. The silent craft approached to what Barney estimated was within 50 to 80 feet overhead and 300 feet away from him. 
And then, so then the on October 21st is when they reported to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, which is NICAP. The investigator that took their report was Walter Webb, and there's a quote from that report that says beings were somehow not human. So during this, Barney, you know, pulled the binoculars away from his eyes and ran back to his car. He was hysterical. He told Betty, they're going to capture us. So he must have felt this feeling that they were going to they were gonna come get him. He saw the object again shift and move directly above the vehicle. And so he started to drive away really fast, told Betty to look for the object. She rolled down the window and looked up. Almost immediately, the hills heard a rhythmic series of beeping or buzzing sounds, which they said seemed to bounce off the trunk of their vehicle. The car vibrated, and a tingling sensation passed through the hills' bodies. The hills said that when they experienced the onset of the altered state of consciousness that left their minds dulled, and then there was a second series of beeping and buzzing sounds, returning the couple to full consciousness. They found that they had traveled nearly 35 miles or 56 kilometers south, but had only a vague and spotty memories of this section of road. They recalled making a sudden unplanned turn, encountering a roadblock and observing a fiery orb in the road. So, okay, I'm not sure if this um, description is the aftermath, because I do know that they had no recollection of they had some missing time and that they went and had hypnosis done in which the the major details of this totally came out and they had a lot more detail. So I'm not sure if this is just from prior to the hypnosis or not. So they arrived home around dawn and they, they had some odd sensations and impulses they couldn't explain. Betty insisted their luggage be kept near the back door rather than the main part of the house and their watches would never work again. Watches stopped working. Barney said the leather strap for the binoculars was torn, but he couldn't recall how it was torn. And the toes of his best dress shoes were scraped. Barney says he was compelled to examine his genitals in the bathroom, though he found nothing unusual. They looked, took long showers to remove possible contamination, and each drew a picture of what they had observed. They were perplexed, to say the least, and they tried to reconstruct the chronology of events as they witnessed the UFO and drove home, but immediately after they heard the buzzing sounds, their memories became incomplete and fragmented. After sleeping for a few hours, Betty awoke and placed the shoes and clothing she'd worn during the drive into her closet, observing that the dress was torn at the hem, zipper, and lining. When she retrieved the items from her closet, she noticed a pinkish powder on her dress. She hung her dress in the clothesline, and the pink powder blew away, but the dress was irreparably damaged. She threw it away, but then changed her mind, retrieved the dress, and hung it in her closet. Over the years, five laboratories have conducted chemicals and forensic analysis on the dress. There were shiny, concentric circles on their car's trunk that had not been there the previous day, and they experimented with a compass, noting that when they moved it close to the spots on the trunk, the needle would whirl rapidly, which means there's some kind of electromagnetic field being disrupted or whatever. So when they moved it a few inches away from these shiny spots, it would drop down and then go nuts when it got closer. It looks like I don't, it looks like they kind of got this stuff wrong in Wikipedia because it says on September 21st, she um, telephoned Pease Air Force Base to, to report their encounter. And they were afraid of being labeled, and so she withheld some of these details. Major Paul Henderson on September 22nd phoned her back and went for a more detailed interview. His report dated September 26th, determined that the Hills had probably misidentified the planet Jupiter. 
They called it an optical condition, inversion, and then used the words inversion and insufficient data. So you could actually find this. Um, an Air Intelligence Information Record. It's report 100-1-61. This report was forwarded to Project Blue Book, which we have not covered here, but maybe we will someday, which was the U.S. Air Force's UFO research project. So Betty goes to the library, she gets a book on UFOs, and she wrote, um, she had written the author who wrote this book, and that was retired Marine Corps Major Donald Kehoe. He, she, so she wrote him a letter. She told him the whole story, including the details about the humanoid figures. And she, she told, wrote that she and Barney were considering hypnosis to help recall what had happened. Okay, so they do recall seeing, they recall everything up until when those buzzing noises came. And, and then that's when the real, the real business comes. So they, obviously they were interviewed several times by government officials as well as the press. And 10 days after this encounter, Betty started having these crazy dreams. And they went on for five nights in a row. In her memory, she recalled dreams in such detail and intensity, they stopped abruptly after five nights and never returned. They would occupy her thoughts during the day, which we all know if our dreams, you know, haunt us, that there's some significance there. She finally told Barney about it. And he was sympathetic, but not super concerned. And they dropped it. And she didn't mention it to him again. And then she started writing them down. In one dream, she said she, her and Barney encountered a roadblock and men who surrounded their car. She lost consciousness and then struggled to regain it. And she realized she was being forced by two small men to walk in the forest in nighttime. And instead of seeing Barney walk behind her, though she was called to him, she, he seemed to be in a trance or sleepwalking. The men were about five feet or five feet four inches tall and wore matching blue uniforms with caps similar to those worn by military cadets. They appeared pretty much human with black hair, dark eyes, and prominent noses and bluish lips. Their skin was a grayish color. In the dreams, Betty and Barney and these men walk up into a disc-shaped craft of metallic appearance and then they were separated inside. And so she protested and she was told by a man she called the leader that if she and Barney were examined together, it would take much longer to conduct the exams. So then they were, ta- they were separated. She dreamt that a new man similar to the others entered to conduct her exam with the leader and Betty called this new man the examiner. She said he had a pleasant, calm manner and they spoke to her in English. They conducted a few tests. They took a, a little bit of her hair examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, nose, throat, and hands, and took trimmings from her fingernails. And then they examined her legs and feet. The man used a dull knife to scrape some of her skin into what looks like a piece of cellophane. Then he tested her nervous system and thrust the needle into her navel, which caused Betty agonizing pain. And then, so supposedly she was in pain, and they waved their hands across her eyes in which the pain vanished. So when the examiner left the room, Betty engaged in a conversation with the leader, and this is still the dream, and she picked up a book with rows of strange symbols on that the leader said she could take home with her. She also asked where he came, and he pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. In her dream, the men began escorting the hills from the ship when a disagreement broke out. The leader then informed Betty that she could not keep the book, stating that they had decided the other men did not want her to even remember the encounter. Betty insisted no matter what they did to her memory, she would one day recall the events. Then they were taken to their car, where the leader suggested that they wait to watch the craft's departure. They did so, and then resumed their drives. 
The University of New Hampshire has a really neat resource for anybody who's interested in looking at, you know, all the press clippings, all the interviews, all of the documents that have been compiled from this incident. It's called The Guide to Betty and Barney Hill Papers from 1961 to 2006. And it gives a little overview about what happened to them. And these papers contain correspondence, personal journals, essays, manuscripts, newspaper clippings, photographs, slides, and DVDs relating to their experience and interest in UFOs. There's a small amount of materials containing their involvement with the NAACP. So you've got all kinds of stuff here, 11 series of artifacts and publications. I wanted to include that in case you guys were interested. Quartz writes an article called Taken, a stressed, sleep-deprived couple accidentally invented the modern alien abduction phenomenon. We want to look at all aspects of this, don't we? This is by Corrine Pertil. She gives an overview about what happened to him. And so she goes on to say that about 2.5% of the U.S. population reports having some personal experience with alien abduction. And it's kind of funny she puts in here, coincidentally, the same percentage reports having voted illegally. It goes on to say, studies by sober-minded non-UFologist psychologists have identified two truths that apply to most people in this unique cohort, including the Hills. They're not lying, at least not consciously. Most people who say they were kidnapped by aliens really believe they were kidnapped by aliens, even if the evidence doesn't support their claim. And they're not crazy, at least not in the way we think of when we talk about crazy people, though they tend to differ from the rest of the population on some key psychological traits. These self-reported abductees are participants in a cultural myth that can be directly traced to Barney and Betty Hill, whose own story came only after aliens started kidnapping people in TV and movie plot lines in the late 1950s. Reports of flying saucers resurfaced in the late 1940s. Aliens were fixtures of science fiction by the dawn of the 20th century. But the trope of real people actually being spirited away by such beings is only as old as the hills. English professor Terry Matheson in his 1998 book Alien Abductions Creating a Modern Phenomenon said, We in the late 20th century may well be in the exciting position of being able to observe and study a myth in the process of being created. I guess there's an annual meeting of alien abductees that happens in Rhode Island, and it's for like a support group for experiencers. So this article also talks about that two years after this experience, they went to see a psychiatrist, and that's when they had their hypnosis. And that they saw short gray aliens with big wraparound eyes that took them aboard their saucer-shaped craft and probed them with needles. The the psychiatrist did not believe their story, although he could see that the Hills very much did. Barney was absolutely terrified, and Betty was more comfortable sharing the story. She was even giving lectures, and they did all kinds of interviews and stuff. I'm sure that you guys can find it. They're both absolutely adorable people. So I guess uh, journalists started sniffing around and got the Hills to agree to a book deal. And then they made it made for TV movie. And then that's when people got really, really into alien abductions. And it just became super popularized. This article goes into many other stories of abductees and what they've experienced. There's quite a few of people that claim to be abducted that were, this article is quoted by saying, dishonest hoaxers or nut jobs. The psychological profiles of abductees differ in some important and consistent ways, this psychologist says. Saying that abductees are likely to dissociate and they are prone to experiencing altered states of consciousness, such as out-of-body experiences or lost time. They are fantasy-prone. These things in combination make a person more susceptible to false memories, recollections that feel completely real to the believer, but nevertheless inaccurate. 
And, you know, so I'm pretty prone to fantasy, but not once have I ever experienced any aliens come to me or even in any lost time, unless I got really drunk, which that's why I don't get drunk. (laughs) This article points out some key facts and maybe some explanation as to, you know, why this happened or why they said this happened. They, you know, the article says that when they saw the lights that they thought was an alien aircraft, they were both thoroughly exhausted. So I guess they, they drove a long way and he, Barney was already, he, he drive a lot, drove a lot during his daily commute and he had an ulcer and all these issues that, that maybe, maybe the exhaustion from the trip and his daily life contributed. They were also pretty disturbed about not being able to account for the lost time. It's a, The feeling of lost time, especially when traveling, is one of the primary signs that a person is too tired to drive. It's called um, false memory formation, which I have experienced. You know, the monotony of a really long drive, you just kind of zone out, and then there's certain parts of the drive that you just don't remember. I've absolutely experienced that. So that makes a little bit sense. Um, They're also saying that the Jupiter and Saturn positions and the brightness may have contributed to the fact that that maybe that's what they saw but that's really hard for me to believe because you can't see aliens inside jupiter it's never once close enough to hover over your vehicle another factor they say was that betty was already really into ufos which is not what we saw in the wiki article and this says that she was a big fan of science fiction she called her sister we did know that who was a believer to talk about that she had seen a flying saucer as well. And then once her nightmares started, she became convinced that the couple had been abducted by aliens. Barney, this says here that Barney was initially reluctant to accept that they had been abducted. They also say that the technique that the couple's psychiatrist used to recover their memories is suspect. It says here, quote, hypnosis doesn't automatically extract the truth from people, nor does it create false memories in itself. It's a state in which the hypnotized person is relaxed, unresponsive, and as in Susan Clancy put it, unusually susceptible to suggestions. So I wonder where they would have got the idea that it was Zeta Reticuli, because I'd really like to see the transcripts of this hypnosis session or the several hypnosis sessions, because... They had some details that are unlikely for people to just dream up, and it's unlikely that that these terms were in any of the the media that was coming out about aliens. Now, the exhibition of the Barney and Betty Hill collection is at um, University of New Hampshire, and they have a, a bust of an alien, and I'm not too sure who who created the bust, but it's supposed to be a replica of what they saw. There's also a really big sketch drawing of the faces of these uh, extraterrestrials that had abducted them. And there is her dress that she actually wore that night. I want you to go look at that and check that out. So all in all, we don't know. We don't know if they're lying. I don't think that they're lying. I want to know what you think. I think that this is an absolutely legitimate abduction case. A lot of people are going to say that abductions don't happen. It's all in our imagination. Well, why are you even listening to this podcast if you think that all paranormal and all anomalous occurrences are in our imagination? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that we would just dream up all of this stuff. Why would we cause ourselves extra stress and heartache and fear 
I, it doesn't make sense to me. When well, money, I mean money, but you get all that attention too. Why would they want that? Well, they worked for the end up, or they, you know, they were they were representatives of the NAACP. Well, that could be part of it as well. Maybe there's a motive to um, for them to want to be more visible. But why for not you know not just for being in an interracial couple and being um, decent community members? Why with an alien abduction? Why would they want that stigma placed to their name? I'm sure they f- they faced a ton of ridicule. I'm sure it wasn't all you know riches, wealth, and or riches, wealth, and a pat on the back from their community. I'm sure they faced ridicule. I think it's a really excellent example of two people. Something weird happened to them. They tried to get help. They tried to tell people what happened. And it's up to us to decide what's true and what's not which is pretty much impossible. I think alien abduction is one of those things that we have to trust the person. It's kind of like a Bigfoot sighting. We have to assess whether or not that person is going to lie to us, if they have a reason to lie, or whether or not they were hallucinating. Why do we always go there first? Why can't we trust each other? Well, probably because there's hoaxers out there. There's people out there that are out to fool people. They're out to make a fool of people. And I don't know why they don't have anything better to do but to tell stories. But there's a few out there. and But that's a very, very small percentage of the total of these incidents. A very small percentage are liars. So I'm bound and determined to believe Bet- Betty and Barney Hill. I think they were both good people that were just trying to live their life and enjoy their life. And something crazy happened to them. And I applaud them for coming out because there's a lot of people that do not, when they experience something paranormal or odd, they don't come out and talk about it because they do not want to face the backlash. It's kind of like it's kind of like the anti-mask thing. You know, people don't want to not wear a mask because they're afraid of the backlash, even though they intuitively and instinctually think maybe, you know, that they don't want to do that. That it makes you not feel well or even if you're medically exempt you're not supposed to be wearing a mask you still wear a mask because you don't want people to stare at you you don't want to be judged it's kind of it's kind of like that or maybe i'm just full of shit i don't know (laughs) going back to the mask debate again so there's betty and barney hill let's move into our mailbag This week's mailbag, I'm super excited to bring you this. I got a email from a listener, and I can't believe she listens. I'm so flattered. Um, I'm not sure if she wants me to share her name. I think, you know, I don't think she's going to care. So let's let's read what she's got for us. Hello, Stacy. I'm horrible at storytelling, but I'll do my best. My experience happened back in 2015 in Tombstone, Arizona. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and moved to the Pacific Northwest in late 2016. One of my favorite places to spend the day or weekend was Tombstone. Oh my god. Oh my god. I'm going to have to talk to you about this. She says, I've been there roughly 50 to 60 times and have had two strange experiences there. Oh my goodness. One is absolutely batshit crazy, but we'll have to save for another time. But here's what happened the other time. And it's in italics. Oh, my God. That's suspenseful, girl. She said, one morning, my friends and I were there. 
This particular trip, I went with two friends, Lynn and Larry. We had spent the day before visiting all of the saloons, watching shows, eating and shopping. We rented a room for the night and in the morning went to grab some breakfast. After breakfast, we decided to stop by the saloon theater for one more show before headed, heading back to Tucson. Lynn and I wandered around the front part of the building, which was a small museum filled with old Wild West artifacts from the late 1800s and a few personal items once owned by famous gunslingers. We were walking down one aisle that looked like it was roped off. Rope was undone, so we figured we were permitted in the area. Girl, I've done that too. I'll have to tell you that story at the Peterson Car Museum. Okay, so she sneaks past the, the rope, and it says, so we figured we were permitted in the area. Then an employee came over, we'll call him Dave, and asked us to leave the restricted area. We showed him the rope, and he said they were cleaning and forgot to put it back and allowed us to finish looking, but quickly. Dave stayed by us as we finished ooing and eyeing over all the cool stuff displayed. Then Lynn turned around and told me to stop kicking her, and I kind of just looked at her like, huh? We kept walking, and then she turned around again and said, stop fucking kicking me, that shit hurts. Then Dave muttered, we need to leave. With his eyes super big, with a creeped out look on his face, we quickly locked, walked back to the unroped off area and Dave said there's sometimes activity in that area we were in and that Lynn was likely kicked by a spirit. Holy shit. We looked at Lynn's calf where she was kicked and sure enough there was a red um, it was red like and she like she was kicked or had just banged it on something. That's crazy. So Lynn and I had headed outside to get Larry. We tell him about what happened and then go inside because the show was about to start. We made our way into the back of the building where there were about eight long benches set up for the audience, and the stage consisted of a bar, bar stool, and poker table. The room was maybe a little bigger than a two-car garage, but well done and very Wild Wild West-esque. We take our seats on one bench with me closest to the wall, then Lynn, and then Larry. Side note, about 95% of the shows in Tombstone are reenactments of past events historical or not so everything is not just based on a true story but it has a hell of a lot of accuracy to it how fascinating she goes on to say the show starts off with the actor introducing what the story was going to be about and that and that this show is accurate due to many reports by police bystanders etc and they are simply reenacting it in a show format so the show starts it's super interesting and we're all paying attention laughing etc Then Larry gets this weird look on his face and beads of sweat form on his forehead. Lynn nudges him and asks if he is okay and he just shakes his head yes. He said he needs air and gets up somewhat stumbles out of the theater and out the front door. About 10 seconds later, the same damn thing happens to Lynn. She looks like death, pale with no life in her face and looked super clammy. I asked if she was okay and she just sat there. I asked if she wanted to leave. Then all of a sudden, like back in her body color comes back and everything was just fine lynn started something along the lines of it was the craziest thing then yep my turn my energy level goes from normal to zero if possible my energy went into the negative i felt so cold and i could feel sweat on my forehead i couldn't think clearly but knew something was wrong but couldn't do anything about it it seemed like i sat there feeling this way for five minutes or so but it only lasted 15 to 20 seconds and then just whoop, went away. 
That's the craziest part. It came and went in a snap. No progression in or out. It was just to normal. Then not, then normal. After this, we continued watching the show. Show was about 10 minutes long. Anyhow, applaud. And then Lynn and I sat there trying to figure out what the hell had happened. We were getting up and an actor stopped us. Asked if we enjoyed the show and if we were all right. We had very briefly said what had happened and he said, oh, you were visited. Kind of laughed and then nodded and walked away. After the calf kicking, and then the loss of energy seemingly passing through the three of us, or whatever you want to call it, we definitely chop chop it up to us experiencing something. Not sure what, but something experienced us as well. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening, and sorry if it rambles. I'm terrible at telling stories. Jen, Jen, you're a badass at telling stories. That was really great, and that's super crazy. I have heard some pretty insane stuff with... um, paranormal investigators going there and having experiences with uh, spirit boxes and all kinds of nutto stuff happening. What's really freaky is the actual like physical assault when people get hit or scratched or in your case, your friend Lynn getting kicked the way that she did because that's kind of scary for something to be able to hit you that you can't even see because what the hell are you going to do, right? So I'm super excited about this tombstone story. Thank you for bringing it to all the listeners. I really appreciate it. Everybody else, get on it like my friend here did and send me your creepy stories because I know you have them. Email them to fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com. Our weekly guest spot goes to Mr. MB333. He is a YouTuber. There's a link below. He is a YouTuber who has um, sky phenomenon and all kinds of weird, weird videos people send to him from all over the world. And he shows them and, you know, beautiful sunsets, beautiful things, weird shit in the sky. And he's got some strange things. And Like right now, our news media, you're definitely not going to see people's home videos of what they catch in the sky, most likely. So MB3, Mr. MB333 is the place to go for that. Go subscribe to his channel and check out, you know, what his gig is. It, It goes right along with my podcast. It's all weird. It's all fringy. It's all, you know, in some cases, speculative. So go check him out. I really wanted to put the spotlight on him because he does a great job. He's got a great website. He looks at, I don't know, the magnetic poles. He looks at geological phenomenon. He looks at, you know, sky events. And it's cool. Go check out Mr. MB333. And then this week for our Inward Survival School of Magic, I wanted to touch on self-sacrifice versus self-love. And if you're like me, you're going to have a major hard time trying to balance this because we do believe in self-sacrifice. We have children, we have family, we have partners that we have to give of our time and give of our energy and sometimes our emotion to other people. Um, And then there's also that time that we know we need to schedule for ourselves, such as, you know, exercise time, meditation time, alone time. And uh, those are methods of self-care in which we totally need. So finding a good balance between the two and not beating yourself up is absolutely super important. So maybe, I don't know, sit down and journal, you know, where you are self-sacrificing and where you are doing self-care and seeing what the balance is in that and, and reflecting on that. 
this article that I'm going to give to you in the show notes is self-sacrifice or self-love from psychology today. It gets into certain aspects in which you in which you can inspect what your attitude is and where you are with this. It it talks that it says that we've been taught that self-love is selfish and self-sacrifice is a virtue. If you're like people who kick themselves around for their slip-ups and shortcomings, you probably have a deep belief that negative treatment is more noble or can help you perform better and helps you gain social approval. Or perhaps you worry that giving yourself too much kind leeway might turn you into a total slacker. It says, modern psychology says nothing could be further from the truth. Truth. It is selfish not to love yourself, and self-judgment brings barriers to success and happiness. Only... As you cultivate the right attitude towards yourself, will you have the right attitude towards helping others? Negative self-judgments actually reduce happiness, increase stress, and limit your accomplishments. Whereas self-compassion and loving kindness, supportive treatment you give yourself during challenges, personal shortcomings, and career setbacks is a more powerful and stress-resilient tool. This article's good. Go check it out. Stop kicking yourself around, it says. It also you know, lets you know that you don't have to let self-judgment hold you back. And you it's it's your duty to cultivate self-compassion and stop these happiness barriers from screwing you up, man. I'm really hard on myself. A lot of self-condemnation for my life's failures or shortcomings. And I'm hard on myself, man. And I do I do believe that it's it's very important to exude personal strength and exemplify, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, exemplify or be an example to what fortitude represents. It says that there's hard evidence to have self-compassion. If you substitute self-compassion for self-judgment, you can foster a positive change about everything you do. It says that um, researchers examined self-compassion in the laboratory and found that when you're hard on yourself, you're more prone to anxiety and depression, and it's more difficult to bounce back after a setback. So stop with the negative judgments. It also says to talk yourself off the ledge. You might want to read up on this if you're going through a crisis. That's especially the time in which we should be loving ourselves. So especially this last year and this coming year is making sure that you know we give ourselves a break and give each other a break and a good attitude towards yourself is going to uh, create a good attitude towards others in your life and that's what we really want to do right we want to help other people well we do first have to help ourselves so taking that time out to take care of yourself so you are healthy enough to enough to care for other people is absolutely imperative and if you don't get that time give yourself a break you will get there It will happen. Our stoic thought of the week comes from the idea of the word willingness. Willingness is key to all things. So the quote that I want to share with you is by August Wilson. It says, Confront the dark parts of yourself and work to banish them with illumination and forgiveness. Your willingness to wrestle with your demons will cause your angels to sing. Have a great week, everybody.